Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show, where everything is an experiment. A medium that you think is out of style doesn't matter. You can still make it work, but to make it work, you need energy and consistency and endurance. So, you know, the perfect plan you don't follow is not the perfect plan, right? (laughs) A good plan that you do follow is maybe the perfect plan for you. And so I feel like I pay attention to these things that really bother me. And the most successful serial entrepreneurs I have met who really just seem to have this supernatural ability to just hit home run after home run after home run. They do have failures and they have incredible execution ability, but they're almost always scratching their own itch in some way. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Tim Ferriss. You know Tim from The Tim Ferriss Show, his famous podcast, and all of his books, The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Chef, The 4-Hour Body, Tools of the Titan, Tribe of Mentors. These are the interviews that I love doing, and I'm also, like, I always drag my feet because I've known Tim for about 10 years, and I know that he doesn't sort of love to talk about himself, and he will for the sake of sharing or if there's sort of something helpful in there. So to ask him to do the interview is always a little bit tricky for me. And we talk about a ton of things. We talk about, you know, he's recently come out in the last few years. If you're interested in listening, I direct you to his September 2020 podcast that he does. We mentioned it in the show about a very serious trauma that he he experienced as a young child. What you realize is that was sort of an impetus naturally to his personality and his intellect to kind of set him in this trajectory of all of this amazing work that he's created. Because a lot of it, and I can relate to this, is from, I would say it's a lot of fear-based work. It's like, what's happening? What is that? How does that work? And so it's interesting, you know, we always have this pain and suffering, and out of that, we can make so many beautiful things, but then how do we go back and kind of maybe heal that and move in a new way through our life? And he, he talks about it. He talks about you know, leading with vulnerability and, you know, some of his experiences with psilocybin or or some other modalities that have helped him heal. And, hey, what would you do? How would you, if you were starting out right now, how would you approach it? He gives some of his strategies in business. We talk about NFTs and where crypto's at for him. You know, this is the most open 
that I've experienced him and it says a lot because here's somebody who has been so successful and they could just go along as they've always been but yet that he always kind of chooses to be a constant beginner and self-reflective and hey how can I do that better or what's going on with me so I hope you enjoy Tim Ferriss, thank you. Welcome to my show. I I need to tell you, when I tell people that I'm going to be talking to you, the amount of joy and questions people have for you. So I can't imagine what it's like for you. People are barely asking me questions when they see me. They want to know a little bit about this or that or something about a board that Laird rides. But with you, (laughs) people want to know. (laughs) Well, I have lots of questions for you, but we'll, maybe we'll save those for, for our next dinner together. But we'll see. We'll see. I was just, I have to hop in for a second. I was just talking to a friend of mine who is a former SEAL and we were talking about buds and I was reflecting back on all the many pool and water experiences <laughs> with you. And uh, man, I got to get back in shape and uh, psychologically in water shape. So that's, that's a different therapy session for another time. We get a lot of those guys and I'm amazed, you know, the aqua trauma for real, you know, yeah. like if they're not yeah. water and the, and it's, and so I find it really such gratifying and fascinating to work with these high level guys, but man, they touch the water and the way that it was used oh, against yeah. them in buds is like, it's real. Oh, yeah. yeah. This particular guy, not to, not to sidetrack too far, but he does cold plunges now and we were doing cold plunges nice balmy 36 degrees and he said it took him i don't know 10 years to get to the point where he could actually go into a cold plunge he was just so allergic to (laughs) that type of submersion (laughs) anyway and i think people who've really been cold are like why do i need to do that again you know it's like i'm good i mean we're doing it like oh i'm cold but they're this is like people they've really really done it right I thought we could, because I, I sort of feel like it's interesting talking to you because you're actually a person who doesn't like to talk to people that much yeah. in a certain way. You know, it's like yeah, you sure. like to change information, but you're like, ooh, talking. So what I thought we could do is we could start a little bit in, in work and then yeah. just sort of lightly slide over because, you know, to watch you and watch your trajectory is really an interesting journey because it's very unusual when you see somebody who not only creates such a unique path, but also a path that didn't exist. And in some ways it doesn't seem that obvious. It's not like when you came out of Princeton, you know, you thought, Oh, that's a guy who's going to be communicating tons and tons and writing books and creating all this content for people to sort of help them navigate their lives better. So I really want to start off with where did you even get you you went from work and i understand like the technology and the biohacking but you go from 4 hour work week to the body to then chef <laughs> yeah that's sort of an interesting progression i'm just yeah. curious when you t- when you took that on and you you did one and you thought oh now this is the next what was the what was the thinking behind that yeah the thinking behind it was well first and foremost holy cow no one expected the first book to do much of anything, including me. So now what? <laughs> what What do I do now? And certainly there was some trying to set the stage. It wasn't a 100% accidental 
happening, but there was a lot of good and lucky timing involved, blah, blah, blah. First book takes off and the there's this there's this quote I'm probably going to be paraphrasing slightly but I I for years used it as the opening quote in any presentation I ever gave which was from Mark Twain and the quote was when you find yourself on the side of the majority it's time to pause and reflect and that applies to me after the success or the beginning of the success of the 4 hour work week because the pressure that I felt externally was to do a follow-up book to the four-hour work week, right? So the three-hour work week or the four-hour work week, volume two, or whatever it might be. And when I looked around and tried to identify models, so who are the people who may be three to five years ahead? What do their lives look like? Who have chosen a similar track? And what it seemed like to me was that many people had painted themselves into a corner where they were the such and such business guy, or they were the such and such fill in the blank gal. And they felt the need to do the same thing over and over and over again. And I'd met quite a few of them. And they're like, yeah, I've given the same talk on the same thing 200 times and I want to throw myself out a window. And what I decided to do then at that point, this is segueing to your question, was to see if I could hopefully test my audience and test myself in a different subject area and try to model someone. And I'm not saying I'm nearly as good as someone like this, but say Michael Lewis, who can write about any topic, or John McPhee, who is a writer who's written about everything from oranges to Alaska to tennis. And people follow his writing because of the way he approaches those topics, not because of one subject. And so I thought to myself, well, right now I have some leverage with publishers. Let me take a risk and try a different subject matter. If it works, then it opens up a million doors. If it doesn't work, I can always come back and do the three-hour work week. <laughs> so the, the, the window of opportunity for following up on that first success is not as narrow as people may think. So let me take a risk. And then as soon as the four-hour body worked, which took a few years to pan out, then I thought, all right, I've done the sort of cognitive side, uh, uh, or actually, let me, I'll do a retake on that. I've done the business side, then the physical side. I want to approach the sort of cognitive accelerated learning side. And uh, each project since has really been a reflection of my personal interest. And that's how, in brief, it is unfolded. But I really try to think about if I choose this particular project, am I doing it out of fear or FOMO or pride, or am I doing it for other reasons? Not saying any of those are automatically bad. And does this project, even if it fail, even if it fails, open up more opportunities and relationships, or does it actually narrow? the new skills and relationships. And if I keep choosing things that are opening up the optionality, uh, so far at least things tend to over time work out. You're still going to have failures. Like the four hour chef was not a huge success. I mean, it was, it was too confusing to people. It's too many books in one. 
But if the four-hour chef hadn't happened, if the four-hour chef launch hadn't happened, in which I ended up the guest on a bunch of long-form podcasts, if I hadn't burned out on that book, I wouldn't have started my own podcast. Mm. So there you go. So within that, there's like three questions. One, you're very, you are a strategic person. And so when you, you act, when I see that, I can see that you were genuinely surprised at the level of success of the first book, but then in a way also that's the goal. So yeah. it is, it, where do you, where do you manage that? Because all of a sudden it's like, Hey, I really wanted people to enjoy this and buy it, but wait a second, am I ready for this attention? Yeah. How did you, cause it's so, it's so interesting. I mean, I think it's an interesting thing when you're trying to be a genuine person, but part of creating more opportunities is having enough sort of foresight or strategy to go. And I have to consider that success. Yeah, yeah for sure. And I think the, the short answer is that I, I'm not convinced anyone can prepare you for any type of public exposure that comes with any kind of success, however small or big, when you go from being a really private or relatively unknown person to having any type of audience or fan base, things can get very strange very quickly. And I would say that books and magazines and so on are full of warning stories or caveats or cautionary tales related to failure or making bad decisions. Uh, there's not much out there to prepare you for what happens when suddenly, you know, weirdos are showing up at your house and they're sort of well-intentioned, but nonetheless, you got strange stuff that starts to happen. To come back to the strategy piece, I would say I really wanted to try to identify the numbers required to give the book a good shot of hitting the New York Times bestseller lists. And I assumed that if I did that, that would open doors for other things. And then I could focus on the next objective or goal. And I tend to approach my life in that way. It's, it's not... I'm going to do A, B, C, D, and then out to Z. It's let me focus on A because if I don't hit A, then B doesn't matter. So let me just really focus on this one thing that's right in front of me. And so for the New York Times bestseller lists at the time, given the week and the publication window that we had chosen, which was not accidental, right? So if you're going to launch right before Christmas, <laughs> you're going to be fighting giants, right? So it's going to make it a lot harder on a ranked list to end up on the print list. So if you choose a softer week, and you can do this by researching Publishers Marketplace and identifying what's coming out in which weeks, then you stand a much better chance. So number one is know your comp know thy competition uh, or thine competition. My uh, my old English is a little rusty. And then second. I, was, I figured out, all right, well, if, if I can aim for at least 10,000, ideally 20,000 books per week for two consecutive weeks, I'll have two solid at-bats. It won't guarantee anything, but if I can try to sell that many books, which will count towards the tally, there will be a good uh, uh, fighting chance to mm -hmm. hit the list. And then I could work backwards from everything else. Like, okay, well, Let's try to identify the specific target demographics and markets and da, 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 da. Uh, and so then 
uh, I, I had this myopic focus, well, first on the book, right? I mean, the book has to stand on its own two feet. It's, it's you know, still standing on its own two feet this many years later, which is kind of crazy. But when I then hit the New York Times list, I was completely unprepared because I don't think I could have been prepared, right? So all of a sudden, I've got random speakers, agencies reaching out like, hey, we want to if somebody would like to pay you X amount to talk for 60 minutes in like Milwaukee. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, sure. Sounds great. You know? And so I said yes to all these things. And then six months later, when the sort of the rent comes due in terms of your obligations, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? You know, <laughs> just a traveling salesman for the next six months. And uh, so I would say that um, I'm very, very strategic in most ways, I tend to focus on the kind of gating objective that opens up other doors. Uh, but in the case of public exposure, I really, I did not have anyone who could have prepared me. And even if they had a lot of exposure, I'm not sure I would have believed what they would have shared. I mean, what was it like for you? I mean, I'd just be curious if you don't mind me bouncing it back. I mean, it's totally different. It's totally different because yeah. first of all, when you, when you're, let's say you shoot your vessel sports, then all of a sudden, maybe yeah. when you're in high school, you get in the local newspaper, then you go to, you know, right. I went to college then you get in the, and then, so it's a, it's a slower burn. And also you're put out front. You, when you, you win, you win in front of people. When you lose, you lose in front of people. Yeah. You do a lot in front. And so you kind of yeah. get used to like, oh, this is part of the deal. And so it's interesting when I see someone like you, who is so curious and, you know, onto the sort of intellectual side, not even understanding or considering that you are part of your business, you, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you're like, wait, no, I'm making, you know, I'm, I'm putting together and curating information for you people to use your life. And then I'll, you know, it's like, oh no, no, we want to know what you're doing and what's your story and who are you going out with? And so I thought it was yeah. just really interesting. It's completely different when you're in sports and also this happened to you at a time when then technology also, ha you know, sort of developed. Oh, yeah. So by the time technology sure. came around, I was a fully formed adult that had taken my yeah. licking both ways. You're great. You suck. I've heard it all. No problem. Yep. So you come along at a time, though, when it's like, oh, and everyone's going to tell you. And that part of it is, too, is that's like that's your audience, the biohacking, yeah. like crazy group. So I, I found it so, <laughs> so interesting when you go, well, wait, um, by the way, I just want to say the chef book, I know it was a lot, but it's a very beautiful book on top of it. Oh, thank I just, you. I'm, I would like you. to say, say that as, as an, as an aside note, do you, very, do you, very proud of it. There's a lot going on, but very proud of the book. It is beautiful. And, and I was yeah. like, wow, Tim went hard in here to, to put all this. <laughs> yeah. Know. Can I give a pro tip pro tip for anyone who's thinking about doing their first four color book? Don't decide if you're the author, that it's a good idea to try to learn how to become a photographer and do like 70% of the photographs yourself. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Terrible idea. <laughs> but it looks great. Yeah, but it worked out. But it worked out. Yeah, it yeah, did. Man. Do you... Do you still feel, you know, because you've talked, you've, you mentioned, you know, the podcast, you're, you're sort of really an original person in the space. Was there, was there, was there a person or persons that after they interviewed you, you thought, oh, this is going to be an interesting medium for me to communicate on? Was there somebody that really turned you on? Cause you're really early into it. And somebody who has yeah. been a, 
a great example of doing it at this professional and, and produced level. There definitely were, for sure. And for each book launch, what I've tried to do is identify the uncrowded, but I should say maybe undervalued, but rapidly growing channel or platform. So for each launch, at least three to six months before, I'll do a landscape analysis to try to identify what is currently undervalued or no longer sexy. So for instance, for some of the prior book launches, that was email lists. And email lists were old-fashioned, no longer interesting, and neglected. But when I talk to really methodical authors, repeatedly, the feedback came that, say, email lists were important to focus on. For the first book, it was blogs. People were like, blog? What the hell is a blog, right? <laughs> but I had authors who were telling me, hey, TV is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. It matters less and less, even though publishers might think it's really important. And these things called blogs, man, they really move books. I would pay attention to them. And then for The 4-Hour Chef, it was podcasting or podcasts. It's like, oh yeah, these things called podcasts, right? Came out in 2012. I think it was 2012. And there were a number of interviews and interviewers who had an impact on me, uh, including uh, Mark Maron, uh, Joe Rogan, uh, let's see, Chris Hardwick, Nerdist, and a handful of others. And it was so refreshing for me to be able to not rush to be myself from Long Island. If I curse in a lot of podcasts, that's totally okay. Versus, and you've done this before, like you show up for some TV morning show, you show up at 5 a.m., they airbrush your face for like an hour, you sit there for another two hours, and then you sit in front of someone who mis mispronounces your name, is looking over your shoulder at a teleprompter, and you have 30 seconds to try to say something smart that encapsulates like a project you just spent years on. And then they're like, okay, goodbye. And it's, it's, uh, it's a really rushed, strange, kind of surreal experience. Whereas the long-form podcast felt really natural, could get into some of the subtleties and go all over the place. And I thought, you know, I do interviews for my books anyway. That's the portion of the book creation process that I enjoy the most is the research, the interviewing, the digging why don't I just try that? And my thought was, if I try the podcast, let me commit to, I think it was six episodes. Let me do at least six episodes. And even if the podcast fails, meaning I stop doing it, or not fails, but if, if I choose to stop doing it, actually, this is important. I view all these things as experiments. So it's not a project that will fail. It's like, let me do an experiment to see what I can learn from it. And with the podcast, my thought was, I'll do six of these. It'll force me to get better at interviewing because I'll want to study other interviewers. And I will get better, hopefully, at removing verbal tics. So I should become a better speaker because it'll drive me nuts with my type of OCD if I'm reviewing audio and I hear myself saying like, like, like over and over again or something. And I'll be able to deepen relationships with some of my friends because I'll want to have softballs in the beginning. Why not? Let's try that. See where it goes. And uh, seems seems to seems to have <laughs> worked out. So I'm still doing it. To the extent that you take something on because you never do anything partially, 
what people don't realize is that when you say, oh, it's a project and I do six episodes is you're putting a lot of time and effort into each episode. You're doing a lot of research. I'm, I'm also curious, let's say like uh, Peter Atia, you've interviewed him. Mm -hmm. I know many times when you, when you move into these spaces with somebody who, and this is more of a selfish question um, because I'm, I generally put the person kind of first and then Mm -hmm. great, we're going to do the learning, but with you, because the, also the, the expectation would be the extraction process of like, Hey, I really, I'm coming to you to tell me how do you have the courage or where do you find your, your footing or, or, you know, the depth when you're dealing with people that, you know, no matter how much preparation you, you do for that particular episode, it's, it can be difficult to kind of, corral or rein in all of that information where where do you what north star do you use to go all right i've got to talk to this person who's an expert in this mm-hmm. i can get yeah, a loose can, understanding can, but how yeah. where am i going to go for 75 minutes yeah for sure especially with someone like uh for people who don't know you know peter ta md i mean he he will have forgotten more about fill in the blank subject in medicine today than I could possibly learn in the next 10 years. So <laughs> it's important to have some constraints of some type. I would say a few things. Number one, just to come back to something you said at the very beginning of this conversation, you said <laughs> something like you don't really like to talk to people. And that and for folks who don't have any context, that might be like, what? That doesn't make any sense. But I'm actually really introverted. Like I don't <laughs> don't like big groups don't uh, sort of flamboyantly showboat in social context. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that depletes me. So I think it's just maybe a useful commentary for folks who are like, oh, I need to be really extroverted if I'm going to have conversations. But part of the reason I stopped doing speaking gigs, which I don't really do anymore, and started focusing on the podcast is because it's a one-on-one conversation. And then Hopefully, tons of people get to listen to it, but it's one-on-one. I, I love one-on-one, but like one in front of groups or in groups don't do that very well. So for people who might think they're doomed to some type of resign to some fate because they're introverted, not necessarily. To your question on the constraints or how you try to corral that, I tried a bunch of different approaches. <laughs> and where I've landed for myself is make it personal, right? When you just said, this is a selfish question. I'm, what I was going to say is all my questions are selfish. <laughs> when I get somebody on the podcast, if I just follow my own interests and try to get their help for me selfishly, I know at least I have an audience of one, right? <laughs> I know I'll at least have one happy audience member. And that's me. And if I can then follow my own interest and say, ask Peter, whatever question I might want to ask him about. Let's say I want to ask him about, there's a, there's a fascinating drug called rapamycin, which is an immunosuppressant. You shouldn't play with it. It's, it's very powerful. There are side effects and risks. Let's say I want to ask him about that. Well, I and Peter, to a greater extent, have all this pre-existing knowledge. So I could still ask about it, but I would need to take 20 seconds or 30 seconds to either explain a little bit of the background myself or say, Peter, for people who don't know rapamycin, just 60 seconds, basics of rapamycin. Okay, great. Check. Now I can ask the question that I want to ask. Mm-hmm. So it's personal interest and personal need or goal or personal pain. 
it's usually through that filter. And what I also assume, since I'm doing the podcast and continuing to do the podcast, I don't have to cram it all into one episode. If I'm having somebody on, like a Margaret Atwood, for instance, this, this legendary fiction writer, I mean, her life is just so incredible that a first interview will very often have a good amount of biographical information, but I'll try to touch on things that have not been touched on elsewhere. So for instance, and this is true for my books too, like I don't want, if, if people are like, oh, you should write a book on A, B, and C. I'm like, there are 20 great books about that already. There's no reason for me to write that. Mm. Or they'll say, you should interview so-and-so. And I'll say, you know, like Joe Rogan interviewed him or her and did an awesome job. I mean, he checked 50 boxes. Just go listen to that. <laughs> I don't need to interview that person. So it's usually very personal. Yeah, I agree with that so much. When I hear like a perfect interview, I think, oh, that's, you know what I mean? Like, oh, that's been done. So either yeah. let, you know, let people enjoy that. I, I really appreciate that. Do you, are there, have there been people, and I'm sure it gets easier as time goes on where you're, you're sort of not only intimidated to do the interview, but even to ask for the interview. Oh, sure. Yeah. I remember the first, <laughs> Uh, not only am I nervous to ask for the interview, but if I get the interview, I remember multiple interviews, I mean, many where I've been really nervous. And I remember my first interview, oh, let me think, let me get the name right. So Ed Catmull, who at one point was the, I want to say president of Pixar. I'm not sure what his particular gig is at the moment. He was the first stranger I had on the podcast. And I'm not sure exactly how it came about. I think he had a new book, Creativity Inc., I think is the name of it, which is actually very good. It was coming out. And so he agreed to do the podcast. We'd never spoken before. So this was nerve-wracking to begin with, because I don't know what his personality's like. Is he going to be rushed? Is he going to be annoyed? Who knows? You just never know what you're going to get. And some people, by the way, <laughs> if they've been forced in a sense by their publicist to do something are going to show up and they'll be kind of annoyed, right? That, that also does happen, which is very uh, <laughs> sort of unbalancing if you're not expecting that. Anyway, he was, he was fine, but I was really nervous. And uh, so nervous from start to finish, from asking for it to getting it to preparing. And then in the interview, I'll, I'll skip to the the punchline in a sense. Interview comes out and I see on Twitter all this feedback, which is at T Ferris. Mmm, 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 like MMM dot dot dot, MMM dot dot dot, MMM dot dot dot, like WTF. And I'm like, what are they talking about? And I went back and I listened to the audio, and every time Ed said anything, I went, mmm, mmm, mmm. And I did that 700 times in this interview. And uh, somehow missed cleaning it up because I did the editing myself for the first 30 or 40 episodes just because I'm a masochist. And uh, there are still interviews where I get nervous. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Still get have nervous ever, after 600, 700 of these things. You don't have to tell me which one, but have you ever had one where you just shelved it? I have. Yeah. I've had uh, not that many. Uh, yeah. I would say six, probably six or so interviews. Uh, six or so interviews that I have not published. And that's always awkward. 
but I've become better at time or I've become better over time at avoiding that. In the beginning, those were in the first probably two years mm -hmm. of interviewing where I was seduced by fame in a way that I'm not seduced now. And yeah. I'm not going to name names, but I would say yes to people I felt iffy about because they were really known names. And lo and behold, uh, there's an expression, when in doubt, there is no doubt. If you watch, if you are an aspiring podcaster and you watch video or audio of someone and you're like, I don't know, don't do it. It's going to be fucking terrible. Pardon my French. <laughs> don't do it. If you're, if you're on the fence, don't do it. And so I had to, had to shelf. Yeah. Six. I haven't done that in years though. It's been a long, a long time. And you find sometimes when people are very well known they're they can't really disclose anything. They can't really tell yeah. you anything. And so as the person trying to have a connection or get, bring value to the audience, it's like, yes, they're well known, but they won't really share anything. Yeah with you because yeah. either they yeah, can't totally. because that's the other thing is we don't we can't relate to like if you're uber uber famous every single yeah. thing you said maybe who knows so i i actually agree with that i i uh sometimes that's the tricky it's like are we really going to talk or are we just going to go through the motions if yeah. you were starting out today right now mm -hmm. given the landscape yeah. you know what would you what what do you think your younger self would sort of be focusing on because listen, you can say you look at you, you do an assessment of kind of what's happening or what's picking up juice, but you have a knack for it. I, you really do. It's maybe your ability to look and trust your instincts. But if you were starting out now, where do you think, given your interest, I'm not saying project for the whole world, um, where you think you would, you would be looking at? Well, let me tell you how I would approach it because maybe that'll be helpful for folks because I don't have a ready answer because I haven't gone through the exercise. But if I were doing it, one very, very critical piece, maybe the most critical piece when you are doing this type of, let's call it landscape analysis, makes it sound very fancy, <laughs> trying to figure out what to do. If you're, if you're figuring out format, platform, all of this type of thing, if, if that is what indeed we're looking at. Where I start is with a self-assessment. Where are you strong? Where are you weak? Where are you mediocre? And then what are you excited about? This is going to sound so simplistic, but trust me, for me at least, it makes a huge difference. Where do you have a lot of energy when you think about writing, when you think about recording audio, when you think about multiple camera television like video let's say how, how do you feel like in your body which of those are you excited to jump into and which of them are you like eh and then which are you like oh i really don't want to do that for instance with me i know uh, this is just a current state of affairs but it would be similar if i were getting started right now video slash tv is not my native element right? It's just, I'm not, there are people who will always be a thousand times better than I am. Like, like Joe Rogan, as an example. And there are many others, right? They're, they're so comfortable and native with video. And that's just not me. I don't actually really enjoy it. And as a result, let's just say I did an analysis and I came back and I said, okay, the, the land of opportunity is TikTok. 
if I don't have that whole body yes to it, if I'm not excited about it, if it doesn't overlap with my strength, I'm never going to have the endurance and the consistency to do anything on that platform. So just don't start. <laughs> do something else. Even if it's a less popular platform, even if it's a less popular format, even if it's a medium that you think is out of style, doesn't matter. You can still make it work, but to make it work, you need energy and consistency and endurance. So, you know, the perfect plan you don't follow is not the perfect plan, right? <laughs> a good plan that you do follow is maybe the perfect plan for you. So for me, it would start with an assessment of strengths, my own strengths and weaknesses, and then also my kind of kinesthetic full body response to considering different options. And then I would start looking at traction and sustainability, things like that. So for instance, a lot of folks are focusing on not to, uh, not to beat up TikTok, right? TikTok could last forever. Who knows? But not all platforms last forever. You might recall some folks who are listening, a lot of self-described creators went all in, pushed in all their chips on Vine, and then Vine went away. Oops, right? And I've talked to some entrepreneurs, very successful, who have you know seven-figure businesses built on Facebook pages. And I remember I asked one of them what that felt like. And he said, feels like I have the most profitable McDonald's in the world built on top of an active volcano. <laughs> because <laughs> it could go away. Algorithm change, policy change, it can go away. So for me, because I'm also hypervigilant and that's just kind of my world orientation, Email allows me to sleep well at night because I know I can take it with me. I can, go, I can move around. If I need to pack up all my belongings on my back, metaphorically speaking, and like move from place to place, I can do that with email. Uh, so those would be, I'm not sure if that answers the question well, but it would start first with self-assessment. Then I would look at traction, but more than traction, I would be looking at what I think will endure and uh, I should say also, if we're talking about content creation, which I'm just assuming for the sake of argument, the, the medium that you choose for your content is, can be totally different than an approach you use to draw attention to your content, right? So you could, for instance, uh, you might, when I launched the four-hour work week, I put up posts on biohacking, even in 2000 seven and played the game with at the time dig.com digg.com which uh, was the equivalent of saying having a video take off on tiktok and get millions of views you won the, the you won the lottery if you got on the front page of dig at the time you would almost certainly have your site crash it was a tremendous amount of traffic so i played that game uh, for attention, but my content game was not predicated on dig. So the tools you use to draw attention do not have to be the same tools that you rely upon as your actual workshop daily driver tools. I really appreciate that because for me, I feel like if someone's really genuinely doing the work, like if you, if, if dig led me to you and then I got to your content, you'd be like, Oh, there's a great deal of work that's gone into this. So it's an interest. Then you don't mind the direction of just getting attention. What I don't like, and I think audiences get fatigued over is 
getting attention directed towards a place that there's still nothing there. So I yep. think it's, you know, important that you've always backed it up with, you know, the real work. And yeah, totally. I, uh, I'm curious, you know, when you, you invested early in a lot of companies, do you use always your instincts? Because again, I guess, you know, I was talking to Rick Rubin, we were both fascinated sort of by your ability, marketing and like, just your ability to see things. Um, is that just innate one of your superpowers? You know, I think uh, I, I have recently been thinking about this. I'll tell you what I think my superpower is, which is a superpower that other people can cultivate and that a lot of other people have, they just don't use it. And that is, I am really sensitive. <laughs> so, uh, you know, heat. You've seen me in the sun. You know, I'm not exactly the, uh, you know, look at the pale, I look like the underbelly of a whale. So, you know, I'm very sensitive physically. Uh, sometimes I wish that weren't the case. I'm very sensitive to different types of pains and inconveniences. So I, I'm, in a sense, if I pay attention to that, I can be the canary in the coal mine in, in a sense, which is I notice something that annoys me to no end that I've come to realize within like five years is probably going to annoy a lot of other people. <laughs> so it's kind of like, who was the person who finally figured out, right? They were like dragging their suitcase through some airport and they're like, we need wheels on these things. What the hell? You know? Like, and then everyone else is like, oh my God, how do we not realize this is so bad? So bad. Like, uh, and so I feel like I pay attention to these things that really bother me. And the most successful serial entrepreneurs I have met who really just seem to have this supernatural ability to just hit home run after home run after home run, they do have failures and they have incredible execution ability but they're almost always scratching their own itch in some way. So for me, I'd say there were a couple of ingredients with the investing in startups specifically, which I do not recommend to most people because it's a very high risk approach. Number one was putting myself in physical proximity to a lot of very smart, strange people who were obsessively working on dozens of different things. There, there really is something to physical proximity, even in this virtual world, maybe especially in this virtual world, frankly, uh, because a lot of online is posturing and presenting and performing. And you may not get the real scoop until you've had you know, two drinks with somebody or you maybe hiked with them until they're significantly fatigued and you take a water break, whatever it might be. Yeah. So there's the physical proximity, just being in the kind of in the pinball machine. So you might have some random collision that produces an interesting thought or conversation. The second, which I think is probably more important on some level, is being really attuned to your the things that excite you and the things that bother you. Personally, you personally. And I have used that for almost all of my best investments. There are other checkboxes just to be responsible. There are many other checkboxes, uh, but uh, I would say those are 
a few of them. Another one is trying to distinguish between trends and fads. If, yeah. I was going to say, well, actually, don't you think when you live kind of long enough, well, I don't know, maybe that's not true, but you think, okay, what's the practical application really for the long term beyond my teenager is going to be digging this for about 18 months to three years or something? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, you know, by the time, my feeling also is that by the time you've had 10 people or 20 people tell you you should pay attention to something, it's probably too late for my purposes to look at it as an early stage investment. Mm-hmm. That's, that's already too consensus in a, in, in a, in a, in a, in a sense. So for me, coming back to that Mark Twain quote, right? When oh, you yeah. find yourself on the side of the majority, yeah. it's time to pause and reflect. I, and maybe this is just a petulant childlike response f- from me, but whenever, whenever I have a lot of, I feel a lot of push to get me onto a platform or a new thing or a blah, 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 blah. I always just say, nope, I'm just going to, if, if there's a lot of pressure, I am going to pause. And I'm going to really look at this closely because not only is it possibly too late from an investment perspective, but even from a user perspective, if everyone is clamoring for the same three podium spots in one sport, you're going to have to do a lot of work. That is going to be very competitive. So maybe if they all jumped from sport A to sport B, let me take another look at sport A. If that's uncrowded, let me let me see let me see what there is to to farm there. Maybe within just to use email as another example. Right? It's been around forever, and I remember someone said to me, uh, "There are a lot of investors who say, ah, oh, kids don't use email anymore. They're all on this, 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 this." And it's like, yeah, they don't use email until they have a job, and then they use email. <laughs> They're all going to use email for a while. Uh, so even in I, school, I would say, like, yeah. like even in school. Yeah, yeah, totally. So for me, not not to harp on the email piece because it, it could be something else, but I would say being being very attuned to my own needs, wants, frustrations, which I think also applies to uh, investing outside of startups. Frankly, right? It's like if I remember the first time I invested in Amazon and publicly traded company. This is a long time ago. Not investment advice. I'm not saying invest in Amazon now. This is quite a long time ago, maybe 2006 or something. And I just looked at my personal spending on Amazon. And then I talked to a bunch of my friends and I'm like, what does your spending look like? What does your Amazon spending look like compared to last year or the year before? And I was like, okay, well, (laughs) it's not a sophisticated investment thesis, but let me see where that goes. And again, not investment advice. This is going to sound stupidly simplistic to a lot of folks, but I pay a lot of attention to my personal use habits, my credit card statements, uh, like where I'm cobbling together solutions. Like where am I trying to piece together a solution that is clumsy? Mm-hmm. Right, where am I doing that? And maybe there's an easier way to get that done. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Do you still send out your um, favorite on Friday? Do you still oh, do yeah. that? Yeah, five bullet, five bullet Friday yeah. is, yeah, five bullet Friday I've done consistently for, man, I don't know, five or six years every every week. Yeah, 
Yeah, the five things. So what it, what shows up for you just out of and if and anyone is not already on this, I would suggest for them to get on it because you you always are sharing very interesting and cool things. Are there things that still uh, you know, like Laird not only has his chili pad, he has his chili blanket. He calls it a, you know, he's in a cold burrito. It's like, you know, <laughs> it's a whole thing. And we joke, yeah. I mean, not to get too vulgar, but like, if you're going to have like sex on your bed, you have to like move his girlfriend over because the pad and the bur- the blanket, like they take all of this room, you know, <laughs> I'm like, well, you want to move the 13 pound blanket off the, you know, bed, whatever. <laughs> but is there anything that shows up for you? Like, you know, a few objects that you're just like, man, these have really not changed my life, but definitely have, you know, been something I've kept up with and use still. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There are tons. Uh, and, (laughs) uh, let's, so I'll, I'll think about right now I'm traveling. So what did I bring with me? Right. Just as an example. And then I can, I can mention, uh, a, f- a few other things that I, I very often travel with that I haven't been traveling with this time. Well, I'll, I'll just give you a few that I commonly yeah. travel with, several sure. of which I'm traveling with right now. So one would be, I almost always travel with a, with a percussion device of some type. So a Theragun, let's just say, could be any number of other models. I will almost always travel with a Theragun of some type. And I just find that it is a great Swiss army knife for so many things. Uh, so I will almost always travel with a, a percussion device of some type, which I have with me, even though it's a pain in the ass to carry around. I will frequently travel with a, in my case, a Nayoya acupressure mat. You can find these on Amazon. Nayoya is N-A-Y-O-Y-A. There are other versions that look identical, like a bed of nails. They're effectively these roll-up mats that have what look like golf cleats on them. Mm-hmm. And you lay on them with your shirt off. That was introduced to me by uh, a, an, an athlete, Mr. Bondarenko, uh, who you can find on Andre Bondarenko from Ukraine, who lives in the U.S. now, but a Cirque du Soleil performer and a high, high-level uh, acrobat. And his coach in Ukraine would have all of them lay on these mats for, say, 30 minutes after every practice. And it's, it sounded like nonsense, but for any type of mid-back, for me, especially mid-back or neck spasm or tightness, I don't know exactly why. I couldn't explain the mechanism, but, but this, this particular type of mat works incredibly well. And I've, mm-hmm. I have some, some injuries in the mid-back that tend to flare up. So those would be two. A lot of them are self-care. Another one that I've been using uh, recently that I'm actually very excited about is something called the O2 Trainer. And Boss Rutten, who's this legendary fighter, wild man, who I've actually tracked since 1992 two or three when I was in Japan and saw one of his first MMA fights. He has this device and it's an, it's a, it's a breath restriction device for developing your inspiratory muscles, developing the the intercostals and different muscles involved with respiration. Uh, So I'm traveling with that right now. And I mean, we could go, we could go down the list. I'll give you one more that's fun uh, because it's another physical device. There's something called the XPO trainer. And I'm sure that there are many other versions 
or competing models now, but the XPO trainer is a sled and the sled is on wheels. So it's, they're, they're not on, on uh, sort of sled. I'm not even what you, sure you, what you would call them, sort of plates, right? They're not, they're not on um, any, anything that you would push on, uh, you know, directly on, say, grass. These are actual rubber tires, three of them. And there's mechanical resistance. So the harder you push, in a sense, the harder it pushes back. And it's perfect for driveways. I mean, you can get a spectacular workout with the with this device uh, just pushing. So for posterior chain, for hips, full extension, hamstrings, calves, it's just exceptional. So the XPO trainer, and again, I'm sure there are many other mechanical resistance sleds out there that kind of mimic a prowler, but with mechanical resistance. Those would be a few. Uh, it's it's pretty uncommon that I include something in Five Bullet Friday that I don't stick with for a while. And what makes Five Bullet Friday even a little wilder, I think, that that not many people realize because I have friends reach out to me and they're like, are you actually putting this together? I'm like, yeah, I'm putting it together. Or they'll reach out and they'll say, <laughs> did you actually read and watch all these things? And I'm like, yeah, of course I did. And what they don't realize is that for every five bullets that goes in there, I mean, I'm reading, digesting, testing probably 30 or 40 things. <laughs> so there are a lot of things that do not make the cut, the vast majority. And uh, those would be a few that, that come to mind that I, that I still use. This podcast is brought to you by Ritual. I've personally been taking Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin since right when COVID hit. I was looking for something supportive and powerful. Someone suggested it to me and lo and behold, I got I did some research and what I love about them is, so women were kept out of research until 1993 by federal law. And Ritual really knows how important women are. Obviously, if you're going to be selling them vitamins, they're essential. And they conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their essential for eight women 18 plus multivitamin to really assess its efficacy. So right there, I was intrigued and even more intrigued by the results. It increased vitamin D, which is what I was looking for, by levels up to 43% and omega-3 DHA, so important, levels by 41%. And that was just in 12 weeks. So they take the time and energy to figure out, hey, you know, does this work? And is it going to be good for these women? And not to mention that what they do is so smart. They, they kind of hone in on nine key nutrients and they put it in two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption. So if you're going to spend the time and energy to really, you know, navigate taking supplements, everything is bioavailable. Your body can absorb it. It don't know what to do. And it's really gentle on your on your stomach. So you don't have to worry about like, oh, I have an empty stomach or after food or before food. They just take away all of those pressure points and make it as easy as possible and give you comfort in knowing also that Ritual's multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free. They're certified B Corp and all of their ingredients are made traceable. Don't get me started on the nice little finished touch of the minty kind of aftertaste that they put in it. I mean, they've really thought about everything. So if, you've, if you're interested, if you're in need, no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. You will get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash Gabby. If you want to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today, 
That's ritual, R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash Gabby to get 25% off your first month. When I hear how you live, because uh, I, I think that that's the other thing that's intuit that become that's very intuitive. Like when someone know, sees your work or, or meets you, it's like this is somebody who's who's working. Like this is a person who's scheduled and working. Do you ever procrastinate, or is it, or there sort of just some things in your life that you you know, like I can say for me you know, it's like that person you don't really maybe want to talk to when it comes to my work. I generally try to get right to it. Yeah. You know, is there, is, do you ever procrastinate? And if you, you know, like if you do, what does that look like for you? Oh, I procrastinate all the time. Yeah. It's embarrassing. So I'm happy to talk about this just to disabuse anyone of any illusions they might have about me. So I, there are many days where I will get to the end of the day and think to myself, I know I did a bunch of stuff today. I know I spent a lot of time staring at a screen and whacking fingers on a keyboard. But if someone said, like, what's the important thing you did today? I honestly couldn't tell them. Uh, So there are definitely those days. Uh, There are other days where I'll wake up and uh, I have some melancholy or uh, lethargy, which tend to go together for me. And I'll I'll usually try to fix that with some kind of cold. I just, I find cold to be tremendously useful. But if for whatever reason I can't, or I slept really poorly the night before, because I still do have quite a, a lot of challenges around sleep, that day just might be a wash. The, the day might be a total wash, right? I'll, I'll actually know what the important thing is, but I'll stare at my keyboard like I'm being hypnotized. And two hours later, I'm like, I've just been clicking around on tabs. I don't even know what I'm doing. What am I doing? on? Like, I have no idea what I've been doing for the last two hours. So this type of thing happens pretty regularly. What, what, offsets that is I think I am much better at being effective, meaning picking the right things than I am at being efficient, which is doing those things right. I think I'm pretty good at being efficient, but being effective. So even over the course of a, say a week, so there's a creative project that I'm working on right now, which is definitely one of the higher leverage, most interesting, exciting things, if not the most exciting thing that I'm working on right now. I can procrastinate for two or three days of the week and not touch that as long as I get in at least two solid, let's call it three to four hour sessions of working on this project. Because I've identified that as the highest leverage project that is going to open up, as I mentioned earlier, new skills, new relationships, blah, 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 even if ultimately it doesn't succeed, say financially. So as long as I get in a couple of very solid work sessions a week, I can procrastinate a couple of days. And it might seem like wasted time. It probably is on some level. Uh, but as long as I don't lose sight of that one project that is the highest leverage, as long as I get in a couple of work sessions, uh, which I think, in my experience, a very small percentage of people do. And by do, I mean identifying the one priority, singular, which is the highest leverage project, in this case professional, that you 
really should be focusing on if your hope is to open up a lot of doors and to continue to grow, et cetera. Uh, so I procrastinate all the time. Yeah, I wrote a blog post. I mean, I've written just just for people who may not know, right? Because the, there's there's the podcast which has sponsorship, and there's the books which people buy. Uh, before the podcast, I mean, I'd written seven hundred, probably seven hundred plus extensive blog posts that were always and will always be free, right? And one of them which is more recent was, I think it's productivity tricks. And I think productivity is in quotation marks, productivity tricks for the neurotic, depressed and something else. And then parentheses like me. So if you just search my name and like productivity tricks for the neurotic, this blog post will come up and it kind of paints a picture of just how sloppy some of my days look. But if you have that one, if you have that one thing, right, that kind of light that is at the end of the tunnel, and a couple of days a week, at least, you can meander your way to that and spend a few hours on it in an unbroken period of time, in a block. Uh, things seem to work out over time. I feel like, too, that that sloppy time that you're talking about, um, that's where you're, you're sort of who you are. You yeah. know, because performance, uh, execution, these are sort of tips of who we are or extensions or moments of who we are. I, yeah. I don't think we live there. I think we live in these yeah. sloppy blobby, you know, I'm frustrated. I don't know what to do, you know, relationships. And I think people don't realize that in a way that that's where we gather up again, who we are. And then we go, okay, now I'm going to see if I can execute something that feels important to me to contribute or whatever. I, I don't totally. think we're all walking around. And and if you are walking around like a laser beam, generally the collateral damage in your personal life is probably pretty significant and, or you're just a robot and you know, it's, it's that. And I, and so I, I really appreciate that, that answer. I, um, I want to, I want to slide over and I, I, I sort of will tell you something kind of funny that it, it really dawned on me once I was realizing we were going to connect here. Um, but bef- before we leave here, I just, out of curiosity recently, like with, uh, you know, NFTs and crypto, I would love your take on it. Cause everybody has a take on sure. it. Um, yep. if, if you have a take and if you go, Hey, I don't yep. know, it's still shaking out. I'm I, that's fine too. Yeah, I, I have, I have a take. My, my feeling is maybe some listeners will be too, too young for this, but, uh, and I'm not the first person to make this analogy i think that there are i am sure at least a handful of companies and platforms and technologies that are going to be world changing within web3 which in some cases will include nfts almost certainly that's the case however identifying those choice few <laughs> is like finding the needle in the haystack in 1999 peak bubble. Like, okay, good news. There are five companies that are going to change the world. Bad news, there are 10,000. You have to find the five. That's very, very hard to do. And from an investment perspective, if I put on my angel investing hat, that's how I'm looking at the space. And I've actually dialed back significantly because I had a couple of large investments in that space go to zero in the last 12 months. And it highlighted 
some of the systemic risk that people may not be aware of and the, the contagion that can very quickly uh, start to have domino effects that, that cause things to collapse. And uh, we don't have to get into all of the background, but Luna and USDT and all of these things, and there, were, there, were, there were just all of these like secondary and tertiary effects that led to things going to zero. And uh, I'm not smart enough to be like a macro investor who is familiar with all facets and uh, interconnections within Web3. I'm just not smart enough, nor am I going to take the time to become smart enough to do that. On the, on the user side, uh, or on the smaller scale side, as people are looking at, say, NFTs, I would say that NFTs, so I own some NFTs, right? But I am treating NFTs like casino entertainment budget. Here's what I mean by that. If I ever go to a casino, because I'm not, even though people might think I'm a betting man, I don't view myself that way at all. I, th- I actually think I am focused a lot of the time on risk mitigation. How do I cap my downside? How do I limit my downside? And then you can swing. Then you can swing for the pitch. Great. But how do you really cap your downside? So I, I never like go to casinos. But if I do, every once in a while, I treat it like I'm going to the movies. I'm like, yeah, this money is for entertainment. Like I'm going to spend this money. I'm going to lose it all. But let me try to lose it over at least a few hours so that I have a good time with a couple of friends. Great. Okay, fine. So I'm, I'll do that once every two years, something like that. And it's a small amount of money I can afford to lose. And the trade is actually pretty good. Right? You have a couple hours of fun, get some free drinks. Fantastic. And then you walk out with no expectation of ever getting that money back. That's how I treat NFTs. And I'm using NFTs as a gateway drug in the sense that it is a at least if we're talking about when we say NFTs in this context, if we're talking about expensive JPEGs, right? (laughs) If that's what we're talking about, there are many different forms they can take. But like, if we're talking about expensive JPEGs, it is something that people can wrap their head around. And I include myself in that group of people where it's like, okay, this is kind of like contemporary art, but it's in this weird digital space. How should we even think about this? And before you can decide how to think about it, for me at least, it's important for me to get in there and get my hands dirty and have to deal with setting up you know, wallets and connecting and doing all of this stuff that is actually a pain in the ass, frankly, to see what the hell's going on. Uh, there's a ton of bad behavior. So NFTs are like medicine, uh, in quotation marks, in the Wild West. Right? Like, <laughs> no regulation, no FDA. Okay, you have a toothache. Like, how are you going to find a dentist who isn't a charlatan who isn't going to hurt you? (laughs) It's going to be very, very challenging. And that's how I think of NFTs right now. So, if you have money you can afford to lose easily, it's not going to affect you or anyone you care about in any way. Right? The, The same amount of money you might put into a casino in the way that I explained. If you use that and you say, okay, this is not, this is my entertainment budget for NFTs. And before this entertainment budget runs out and goes to zero, which it will, that's my assumption, I'm going to try to learn as much as possible. Then I think there's an argument to be made that that uh, could actually be an interesting use of time. 
But man, oh man, oh man, have I seen so many people on the internet who are day trading NFTs. They are really romanced by the idea of making a lot of money quickly. And, uh, you know, hashtag YOLO, they're taking their last savings and putting it into like an expensive cat JPEG. Yeah. I think that's a terrible idea. Uh, I think it's a terrible idea. And what people should realize also with NFTs or any investment, it's not just buying. You got to know when you're going to sell and you should have an exit strategy. If you don't have an exit strategy, it doesn't matter if you buy at $1 and it goes to 100 Congratulations, but if it goes back to fifty cents, guess what? Yeah, <laughs> you're not, you're not in a great place. So I, I think that people should be very very cautious with NFTs. Uh, I am engaged with them, but I'm tr- I'm playing with casino money that I expect to lose entirely. I really appreciate the idea too of the learning. Um, I have been working on a project for like oh, ten months, just getting educated yeah. about it. And to be yeah. honest, what's being told to like, let's say as a create as a, the creators, and I'm using yeah. Laird as the obvious person. Yeah. Um, you know, I love I do things with Laird. He's not even barely online, but he, you know, he's yeah. sort of he's the best person to lead with. But the yeah. whole idea is, what are you going to what are you going to give? When yep. we're when we're approaching this, it's getting beat into my head about. The utilities, what are you giving them? What does this thumbprint give you? What does this card give me? And so I don't know if that shows value of maybe there's a new idea besides just the electronic JPEG. Oh, sure. Sure. But, you know, that's getting sort of like, to your point, like Web3, oh, could we put things in Web3 that would somehow elevate your health? Could we get you up out of your chair, away from your desk? You know, things like that. I I don't know. So it'll be... It'll be interesting to see. Super interesting. And I'll, and I'll just build on what you said to, to point out that, number one, Web3 and blockchain are going to fundamentally change how a lot of things work in the world. Period. Full stop. I have zero doubt about that. Things are already in motion. A lot is going to change. A lot is going to change. And there are also many different types, as you said, many different types of NFTs. I mean, NFT... I'm simplifying here, but it's like digital title, right? It's just, it's basically like you have a deed to your house. Okay, now you have this digital deed to some type of file or something, right? And you can uh, very simplistically think of it that way. And there are some really interesting utility NFTs out there. And uh, I have friends who have created different, let's call them membership passes, and you can create incentives. Uh, some of which can be embedded into the smart contract, some of which is sort of layered on top in some way. And it's super, super interesting. What I will say to anyone who is creating NFTs is do not make, or let me make it more positive, only make promises that you can deliver and make sure you talk to lawyers so that you do not run afoul of securities law. Be really careful really, really careful with that, uh, both for the people who may buy your stuff and for yourself legally. You got to be very careful. And just because a lot of people are bending or breaking or ignoring the rules online does not mean that you are immune. So pay a lot of attention to all that stuff and work with good lawyers. And if you're like, I don't have the money to work with good lawyers, then don't do it. <laughs> that's, that's that's very important advice. I'm, I'm also curious... 
you know, people, uh, they're navigating, there's so much information online. I mean, about, especially about health and fitness and hacking and all these things. And it's funny, we get into, we get invited to do, you know, all these biohacking things. And, and our thinking is, yes, that works. If you're sort of doing the, some of the fundamentals, like you still have to go to bed at some point, you know, you have to have time under tension. How do you kind of just weed through all the noise and, and see the mix of real information and, and valid hacks, because let's say, face it, technology is a tool if, if done correctly. I mean, yep. Yeah. My, uh, I think my, my approach to a lot of this has become more and more minimalist over time. Yeah. Uh, as uh, I suppose it's not shocking if you just consider that the, the volume and the ratio of noise has just become and will continue to become worse and worse and worse. The, the finding the signal and the noise is increasingly challenging, I think. I, and this is a quote, I'm blanking on this coach's name. I wish I could remember. It's a Dutch, I want to say Dutch track and field coach. This quote was in was in the four-hour body. If somebody can find it. I think it's Hank is the first name, H-E-N-K. Trained multiple world champions. And his quote was something along the lines of, that the goal is to do the least amount necessary, not the most possible. Mm. And I think about that a lot. Like the minimum effective dose of various things. And what that means is I've cut way back on supplements. I've cut way back on ancillary training gadgets. Clearly, I mentioned a bunch, so I still use them. But for me, I require many more points of proof or social proof from people I trust before I'm even going to test something now because there's so much garbage. There's just so much garbage. So the way that I vet stuff frequently now is... And it's no accident that I know a bunch of researchers and doctors and so on because I have them on the podcast. I mean, that is deliberate that I get to know these folks, right? And become friends with a lot of them. And then if they happen to know a lot about X and something comes on my radar that seems plausible, right? Maybe there's a scientific study. Maybe there's a good scientist involved, even if it's a commercial for-profit. And I'll send something to them and I'll be like, sniff test. What's your take? Mm-hmm. And if it's if it's anything hyper skeptical, I'll also be looking at the the pros and cons or the upside downside because I will say, with a lot of let's just say, I'll I'll use supplements specifically, and I do take supplements. I got to I mean, look. yeah, vitamin C right here, right? Yeah, you know I I do take supplements, so it's, I'm not saying that I don't, but there are very few biological free lunches. So for instance, I remember when a lot of my friends were taking tons of modafinil, provigil, so this anti-narcolepsy drug. And they were like, I feel great. I can focus. It's like no downsides. And I'm like, no downsides. I'm, I'm like, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, if you're at the poker table and you can't spot the sucker, like you're the sucker. Mm-hmm. If you are getting a huge amplitude of effect from something, there's pro, there are other things going on, right? Those resources need to be pulled from somewhere. They need, we need to be metabolized in a certain way and just be aware of it. And then you can do a, a risk calculus. But uh, 
I would say to, to answer your question that I, I, I depend on friends a lot for the, uh, I'll give you an example, the O2 trainer, right? So inspiratory muscles and so on. I wanted to go on PubMed and do a bunch of reading. Okay, let's, let's see if there's actual literature, are there actual studies that demonstrate that you can develop this musculature in a meaningful way using some type of, of uh, let, let's say, breath sort of volume per second limitations? Is there anything to actually support that? Or is this just a bunch of hand wavy stuff? And there's a, there's a ton, there's a ton, there's a ton and ton, ton of data that you can look at, ton of research. I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. Why not? And uh, supposedly you start to see some results within a few weeks. I'm going to be at altitude. Let's go for it. Tim, you have, you know, I'm a very, um, I grew up in the Caribbean and um, that with like everyone was kind of freewheeling and a little bit just more wild. And yeah. so I, I grew up, uh, I think that actually forced me into a linear path. And I know you understand it's like certain things that happen when we're younger kind of push us. And if we already have a natural tendency, right? So it took maybe a natural tendency to be disciplined or whatever and kind of, it, which is great and has worked great. But obviously there's been things that I've had to really look at, especially for me, it was having children and being in a long relationship that it was like, okay, you got to deal with it. Now you, and I, I really appreciated your uh, approach when you talk about, you know, psilocybin or things like that, that you use as tools for healing and for help. Because I think for so long, and obviously Michael Pollan and people like that have really put a different tone on it. MAPS has put a different tone on it where it's like, hey, this is in a clinical environment. You have a male and a female, um, you know, kind of clinician with you. There's sort of a system. But I, I really, I just there was something about when you said, Hey, I'm going to invest in this space. Cause it's also helped me. And I think there's important things here. I'm just curious if there's anything that you can share, um, that's new or different in the research in the psilocybin space or this space in general. Sure. I can try to share some of that. And, uh, certainly, uh, these tools have also played a role in the toolkit that have helped me with a number of uh, various things, treatment resistant depression and uh, trying to metabolize, I suppose, uh, childhood abuse also. And I'll give some research points and I'm not a scientist, not a doctor, don't play one on the internet, but I'll, I'll share a couple of things that, that I do think are interesting about the research. And then I'll, I'll share my commentary on the compounds in general and we could talk about certainly just within the within the category of psychedelics i would include things like psilocybin and ayahuasca and other things lsd certainly so on the research side uh, there appear to be many conditions for which psychedelic compounds are potentially effective say cluster headaches, uh, which is a debilitating uh, condition and affliction for a lot of people that does not, uh, uh, that do not require the psychedelic effects of psychedelics. So there are certain compounds, designer molecules that are being created that remove some of the psychedelic effects 
while maintaining the clinical efficacy for some of these conditions. So I think that's very, uh, very, both very exciting and uh, very encouraging because it it broadens the populations that could benefit from some of these molecules, at least with slight tweaks made to them. And that could end up proving true for a lot of conditions, including those that are responding very well to, say, classical psychedelic treatment. Uh, the I wouldn't say the catch, but one comment I would add to that, and there are also new combined therapies that are being explored with different, say, drugs that affect mTOR pathways that could extend the antidepressive effects of psychedelics, including in this class temporarily, just for the sake of conversation, ketamine at higher doses used in a clinical setting intravenously for acute depression or treatment-resistant depression. Uh, so th those are all very, very exciting. The comment I would add is that for me personally, and I think for many, the psychedelic experience meaning the reality-bending, ego-dissolving experience is what we would attribute a lot of the clinical benefits to. In other words, the content yeah. isn't a problem. Yeah. The content is, in some case, the, the, the gem that allows you to have, I think, or contributes to durable effects. Because these drugs, let's just say psilocybin, as an example, the half-life is really short. I mean, after 12 hours, it's out of your system. So if that is the case, how then would you explain durable, for some people, antidepressant effects or anti-anxiety effects, anxiolytic effects, out three or six months? How do you explain that? Now, one, one approach would be to look at the brain structurally and to say, all right, these following changes have taken place. Maybe the dendrites are longer and in these following places. There's more synaptic density in these following places. But those tend to last on the order of days or weeks, not months. So how do we explain months? You know, are these people delusional? Are they reporting incorrectly? Are they trying to please the experimenters by telling them that they're still feeling good? I don't think that fully explains it. And so my, and I'm not the only person who thinks this, of course, but my perspective is that often we are so enmeshed in our own, we're all enmeshed in our own stories about ourselves in the world. And those stories, right, the software that is running in the background constantly forms our reality. It forms how we, uh, it informs how we feel. And it's very difficult in a, in a sober state, not impossible. With, with, with a dedicated meditation practice, you can also do this, which I think is an important adjunct to all of this. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to, it's, it's, it's like if, if you tried to look out your eye to examine the lens of your eye, it would be very difficult, right, without a mirror. And I think similarly, trying to examine the, the automatic subconscious beliefs that drive your behavior and your your vision of who you are is very hard to do without some assistance or some tool. Meditation can be one. Psychedelics properly supervised at, at proper dosing range seem to, for a lot of people, help them to become an observer 
of their own mind, their own minds. And it, it enables some people to look at the effects that these beliefs are having on their lives and they can suddenly take something that is usually read only usually it can't be changed because it's so it's so uh sort of endemic to who you are and now you can begin to make little edits you can start to rewrite those narratives and you can start to modify those beliefs uh, or at the very least just become aware that you even have these beliefs right uh, so that when you get back to your normal waking sober state, that let's say you begin to have uh, an emotional reaction to something, and this is a common pattern, you can say, oh, wait a second, that's because I have belief X. And there's actually not a lot of evidence to support belief X. It's just a remnant from something that happened to me when I was five years old. And now I'm an adult, I can relate to that differently. So I do think that uh, some of the durability that is seen, which doesn't last forever, by the way, for most people, it doesn't last forever. But some of the durability that we see can be attributed to that type of content, which is a feature of the classical psychedelic experience. So those are, and I would say you got to have, you, you really need to have a support structure in place do not go into a psychedelic experience unsupervised. Do not do it without a therapist who can act as a safety net afterwards. You really are working with nuclear power and uh, not everyone turns out better afterwards. Or people go in and they assume like, yeah, I don't really have any childhood trauma. Well, what happens if something comes up that is really, really shocking? And you don't know how to contend with that. I mean, I've seen this happen also. You need to hope for the best and prepare for the worst in that sense. Uh, so don't assume it's just going to be kaleidoscopic euphoria. Uh, it, it can end up being very, very challenging. Yeah. And for all of those reasons and more, you need qualified professional help, not just, not just during, but before and also after. It's like having full knee reconstruction yeah. <laughs> like you you really need to have pre pre-op op and then post-op i i really uh, appreciate that perspective and and um I, you know because i honor kind of the way you work um i will say to people if they you've you have been very forthcoming about some uh late discovery kind of traumas that you had. I think it was a podcast in September of 2020 that you, you talk at length in an environment chosen by you with opposite of somebody that you wanted to talk with. So I encourage people, um, because again, talking about it's already been done. Um, but you, you do share that, um, you sort of experienced through this process, the discovery that you recalled, um, you know, having your own childhood traumas from you know, age two to four or, or so. So yep. if anybody wants to listen to that podcast again, it's September, 2020. And, um, and you know, the pandemic was the thing that brought you, I, I would imagine it might've been the thing. I'm sure it was a long time coming of, you know, navigating this. 
Um, but you also give a lot of resources on that podcast and you share your experience. And to your point, you had somebody, Jack Cornfield uh, was there to sort of help you. Oh, it was, uh, yeah. Jack I mean, was the safety net I mean, during in the very of, beginning. Yeah. So just yeah. reminding people that you're not also speaking from a book, but that this is something very personal to you. And I, and I want to tell you that through learning about this, because I pay attention to you, Tim, you're, you're, I consider you, you know, we, I, a far away friend, you know, those people that you don't see them, but I know if I yeah. needed you, I could call you. Um, but I, I have to tell you through learning about your experience, it taught me something because I always feel um, that I'm very like completely transparent. Usually like when you see me, it's kind of like, here I am. I think Laird is also even more guilty of this. Like there, it's just, uh, here it is. Right. And so when you meet someone like you, who is like, I like, and, and we spent time together, but there was always like a, like a guard. And I used to be like, what's up with Tim? Like what's, you know, like, (laughs) no. And it's an interesting thing to look back at myself because when you're not understanding what someone's going through or it has experienced, it's so easy to, because I think, oh, he's smart, he's uh, successful, he does all these things. So he's obviously completely self-aware. He's just skittish. And yeah. it used to make me, I used to think, what's up? Like, wh- can we get past that? And then it was interesting. I listened to your podcast and I thought, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so I only bring this up because I bring it up, first of all, for personal accountability. Um, but to remind people, you know, that whole thing about we d- we don't know the burden that other people are going through. And it, we so are quick yeah. to make it about ourselves. And that yeah. um, I just really admired your courage, especially knowing you a little bit. I was like, man, he is sticking his neck more like way out there sharing this and, 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 and handling it also like you do like, Hey, this is what helped me. And here's the tools. And this is where you can go and read this and check this out. So I just wanted to kind of bring that up because I'm sure I'm not the only person that, you know, was mis misreading the vibration or the signals and somehow, yeah. you know, like you go, well, it's been six times, like I'm safe, but you don't realize that's got nothing to do with it. So yeah. I just, I wanted to bring that up because I, I, um, everybody has their way that they do it, you know, differently. I, you know, I, I just want to remind people of that too. Like we don't know. And if we can just show up. Yeah. Thanks Gabby. I, I really appreciate you saying that. And, um, the, the conversation for people who are interested, if you just search Tim Ferriss, Debbie Millman is yes. my, my conversational partner, M-I-L-L-M-A-N, and uh, childhood abuse. It'll pop right up. And it, it goes into, I'll just warn people in advance, it, it's, it's not terribly graphic, but it does go, we both talk about sexual abuse. Uh, yeah. She also has that in her history. And uh, to, to your point, I remember some, I can't, I wish I had the attribution. I can't remember who said this to me once. And I, and it's a good reminder also for myself because <laughs> we can all forget easily. And the, the expression that was shared with me was everyone is fighting a battle, you know, nothing about. And I was just like, yeah, just assume that like, like you're not getting a hundred percent because sometimes the person 
doesn't even know what that 100% looks like themselves, right? <laughs> like they're being driven by 10% that they are not even consciously aware of. So just assume everyone's fighting a battle you know nothing about. And I uh, appreciate you bringing that up. And uh, Well, and it made me also yeah. think, you know, I've experienced something as a parent that was very uncomfortable in this space. And so I want you to know that, um, and you and, and Debbie talk about it, you know, it's sort of, it's probably more boys than we realize. They d- don't always report and it's one in in four girls, things like that. This is everywhere. And, yeah. um, and, and it's never easy uh, to manage from any side. And um, what I want to say though is, is, for example, okay, selfishly, my mom took a parenting hiatus from age two to seven, right? This made me pretty independent, diligent, all these great things came out of it. And you, you said the word sensitive. I'm sure naturally because of your intelligence and you have a natural sensitivity, but this probably ramped it up times a hundred is simultaneously all of this amazing, beautiful work that you have put into the world that also people have enjoyed and used as tools. Part of it a great part of it comes from this this very difficult and challenging thing that you've gone through because you're yeah. you know you're putting things in order you're putting things in buckets you're saying okay well you know it's like you're navigating to go well what's this going to do and what's that going to do and so it i don't i i sometimes wonder also it's it's always remembering too that I think that's for most of us, you know, people have asked me like, Oh, why do you think you do all these things? I go, well, it started with a fear, you know? And then I've, I've re I've redirected, like you said, now I'm an adult. I don't need to have those same responses, but so it's like, how do we be grateful for those things and heal from them and move on? And, and so I, I just, you know, I just really appreciated that, uh, uh, you know, about you, you know, continuing to share, your experiences, uncomfortable and, you know, comfortable. Um, I just have one last question. I mean, I have a hundred more, but I'm not going to keep <laughs> you all day. You know, you knew early about the pandemic earlier than, you know, certainly uh, the Americans. I mean, you know, maybe there were some, you know, maybe people in China were getting some indication. I'm just really curious what you saw that you thought, yeah. oh, we're, we, something's happening. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's wild to look back at that whole chapter. I mean, it seems like yesterday, but also a hundred years ago now it's, it's a funny thing, time perception. So what I saw was a collective response among some of the global macro investors I respect a lot. and this is another reason why I like to cultivate. And I don't think this is that you don't have to be, you know, Tim Ferriss with the podcast and to cultivate friendships in different spheres. Right. So this is going to sound very particular to me. I don't think it needs to be because I was doing, I was trying to develop these deep friendships with specialists in different places well before even writing the first book. So you don't need to have a huge platform to do this, but it does help. So I saw among a number of global macro investors, what does that mean? That means, I'm going to simplify it here, but they're watching global political events. They're watching 
natural resources. They're watching sanctions. They're watching uh, also basically any type of disaster that could befall a given city, country, and therefore world if everything is highly in- interconnected. And also uh, these these guys, in this case, they're all men, but uh, it's just a few really have something in common also with tech investors because te- a lot of tech investors were early to pay attention to COVID-19. And I think the reason or one of the reasons for that is that both of these groups have a lot of practice looking at exponential growth and what exponential actually means. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for instance, uh, I mean, it's, it's very counterintuitive when you start to look at, at, exponents and exponential growth, what that, what that actually means. Uh, because humans, I think, by default are, are very linear in how they think about growth curves, positive or negative. And for that reason, uh, for me, the, the rate of growth in a place like China, in a place like Italy especially, uh, South Korea later, was very, very troubling. And it was troubling on a number of levels. Number one is like Lombardy and Italy. I think as Americans, you know, go America. It's very tempting. And I, I sometimes have this temptation too to be like, ah, oh, well, it's, you know, it's like the backwater of fill in the blank country. Like, of course, they're not going to know how to figure this out. Well, it turns out like Lombardy and Italy actually have excellent healthcare on a whole lot of levels. And access is certainly in some respects much better than in the US. And uh, so tracking this exponential growth, looking at how it was spreading, this is, I guess, late January, first few days of February is when I was paying a lot of attention and then wrote wrote the first blog post probably a week or two later about seatbelts, if anybody wants to see. (laughs) Meaning, people are like, ah, it's like, why is it dangerous? And I'm like, well, you do a lot of things that hedge against risk, even though You've never, say, had a head-on collision on a freeway. You still wear your seatbelt. Why? Because it doesn't take very much. Or you have a fire extinguisher in your kitchen. How many times have you used it? Probably zero. You still want it there, just in case, because the downside risk is really high if you don't have it. The inconvenience is very minimal. So yeah, let's look at where we can apply seatbelts in different areas in our lives. That was the the blog post as uh, relevant to this particular SARS-CoV-2 then is it later best known? I mean, it's that's the disease that causes, or that's the virus that causes then the COVID-19. Anyway, so what I was watching was the growth rate and there were a, f- a few basic assumptions. One was that with global travel, with international flights and slow-moving governments, like, this is going to be impossible to contain. It's going to be completely impossible to contain. Of course, it's going to be impossible to contain. And with, uh, as we saw later, with, uh, and I get it on some level, but with people all over the world who are like, masks, I'm not wearing masks. I'm like, okay, well, it's definitely not going to be contained, you know? Uh, and that's nothing new. Humans are stubborn, right? And uh, I get it. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. Often they're wrong. And I was like, okay, yeah, there's no way this is going to be contained. There's absolutely no way. And uh, based on that, I then started making a certain assumptions. So I was thinking about, for instance, like, okay, what happens 
when this is really spreading? What happens when governments panic? And then thinking about, for instance, shortages in medication, Mm -hmm. something like that. So one of the first things I did when I reached out to my parents, which was very early on, this was before anything in the US was locked down. I said, make sure you get at least a few months of all of your most critical medications. And if you need me to talk to your doctor, I'll talk to your doctor. And if your doctor won't cooperate, call me back and I will find a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I think a lot of it was having friend groups in different places, also geographically, by the way. Like I knew people on the ground in Italy. Uh, I knew people who were on the ground in South Korea. And I also knew people when New York started to become a hotspot, I knew people or I got to people, I was able to get to people who were literally in the ER treating COVID patients on respirators to chat maybe every other day to say, what is happening? What are you seeing? What is working? What isn't working? Uh, And scared the shit out of me. I was like, okay, yeah. Like, even if this is a a false positive, let's say this is a, a false alarm. It might not be. So let's take a few precautions, you know, just put on the seatbelts if they're easy enough to do, and then just wait until we have more information. Let's see what happens. And uh, certainly, even if, and this is also an assumption of mine, it's like, even if the lethality of this is overestimated, I think the economic damage and social disruption is, is severely underestimated right? It's like, there doesn't need to be, even if there isn't a fire in a theater, if it's a crowded theater and so and a bunch of people start yelling fire, you still need to deal with the consequences of that. Uh, and so I thought about that quite a bit too. I'm like, even if this isn't as lethal as, as people may think, even if it's not as contagious as people may think, the reaction is going to be slow and then it's going to be panic on an organizational and governmental level. And also on a, on a neighborhood and personal level, Lots of stuff is going to be sold out immediately. There's going to be a run on all sorts of things at grocery stores. I mean, people might remember these videos of like, women duking it out over like toilet paper, you know. And uh, so for me, I guess it was saying like, okay, assumption one, assumption two, if these two assumptions are true, what are the obvious like secondary and tertiary effects of that? Uh, but a lot of it came down to, to, to being comfortable, somewhat comfortable with, with exponential growth. And like everybody who's listening to this, I really encourage you just to get a basic comfort with exponents and probabilities. They're like the great courses and there are a bunch of ways you can do this in a user-friendly way. Uh, but it's, it's very counterintuitive. No one is born having an intuitive grasp of these things, I don't think. Uh, so uh, good, good to check out. <laughs> I'm excited um, to see whatever you're doing next. Is that do is, do we have a time on that, or is, is that the unknown? Uh, it's it's still TBD, but it's probably yeah. uh, I'll probably launch something fun as far as creative projects in the next let's call it uh, three months. So pro- probably by the end of 2022, I will I will have something out, Wait. and uh, I'm excited about it. It'll be fun. Is it is it true like you ha- you were going to do a book about saying no and then you said no to the no book? Is that right? That, that is 100% true. Yeah, I wrote 
I, I got almost, this is going to sound insane and it is insane. I got almost 200,000 words of various stuff. I mean, 200,000 words for people who don't know what that means. That's like four books. I mean, it's a ton. I did, I had like 200,000 words of rough drafts and notes and everything. And what happened, so I was going to write a whole book about saying no, because I wanted to get better at saying no. And I was like, this is a great excuse to just reach out to all my amazing friends and say, teach me your tricks. And so I, so I signed this book contract. I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. And I reach out to a few dozen of my friends and they're like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm terrible at saying no. You're the one who's good at saying no. You need to write the book. I'm like, I don't want to write the book. I thought you were going to help me write the book. And so I, I, I put a ton of time into it, a ton of pages. And then I realized as people are telling me like full body, yes, or it's a no and this and this, I was like, yeah, I'm not a full body. Yes to this. So then I said no to the notebook and, you know, returned the money, canceled the contract and still have all the notes, uh, which maybe at some point I'll do something with, but yeah, I said no to the notebook. True story. I really love that. I, um, I really appreciate you and I appreciate you leading with the vulnerability that you've been leading with and just for helping all of us, you know, continue to learn. And, uh, I, I assume that you're, you still enter into life just as a, do you feel like a beginner on, on things? You oh, have all the knowledge. I Are you? Like, oh my God. I feel like such a beginner in almost all the ways. Yeah. <laughs> I just want you to have a baby, Tim. I want to see that beginner. Yes. My friend. Here I we know. Go. I know. That's the next, that's the next chapter. We so, can have a TBD. We'll talk about that. Well, Tim Ferriss, yeah. thank you for your time. And uh, I'm excited. In the next three months, we'll see. We'll see. And uh, see, what, we'll see what happens. Yeah, Gabby. Well, thank you so much. Hope to see you again in person soon. Yeah. And uh, we don't have to pool train, Tim. <laughs> I enjoy the pool training. I associate Laird Knight with always that like, rah, like heart. Everything's hot. It's cold. We're in the pool. We could just sit and eat, you know. <laughs> Well, we'll have to do it before like 6 p.m. when Laird falls asleep at the table. But yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> just leave. I like how he'll just go upstairs in his own house. No problem. Talk about someone who can say no. Hello. He doesn't even say no. He leaves. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. That's the best way to say no. I remember also, you know, saying, you know, Laird is so, he's so one of a kind in so many ways. And I remember at the end of, my interview when I was interviewing you guys for my podcast forever ago. And I, and I asked Laird, where could people find you? Right. Because people are usually giving out their social handles and he thought about it for a second. And he goes, the Pacific ocean. <laughs> I was like, Oh, it's so good. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Gabby, it's really nice to see you. Really, really nice to see you. Aloha, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click GabbyReese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. Stay tuned for a bonus episode coming this Thursday where I go deeper on one of the topics that really resonated with me. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at GabbyReese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.